this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith from the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a guest with me today that, that I have had some terrific conversations with, and he is, uh, like me, he's a retired police sergeant, and uh, but he's involved with an organization that is, is truly uh, near and dear to my heart and, and near and dear to my profession, and uh, that's an organization called safe call now and john is a general partner in that organization and uh, we're going to talk today about what safe call now does for law enforcement and and first responder in general um, wellness as far as education goes and assistance and prevention we just have a lot of terrific stuff to talk about uh, john alovio welcome to the show Thank you very much for having me, Betsy. It's a great to be here. So uh, let's talk about um, how you got involved in Safe Call Now. Well, I met the founder of Safe Call Now, Sean Riley, about four years ago. I went to a law enforcement symposium that Sean was making a presentation at for the Safe Call Now program. Uh, I sat through the program, very intrigued by what he had put out uh, and saw firsthand the need at my department uh, for what he was discussing. Uh, so uh, I invited him to dinner and over dinner, uh, we worked out some ideas to implement his program at my police department. Uh, at that time, I was a patrol sergeant at the Waco Police Department and then Chief Ryan Holt had made mental health for officers and employees at the police department a high priority in his term. So based on my conversations with Sean, I returned to my department and spoke with Chief Holt. He was excited about that opportunity. And so with his assistance, uh, Sean and I implemented the first prototype department-wide of what Sean had been presenting on, which is uh, mental health assistance for first responders and their families, which is a key component. Now, uh, John, I, I want to ask you, because I think people wonder, you know, why why all this talk about police officer mental health? You know, I, do we have a problem in this country with police officer wellness? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, People typically correspond post-traumatic stress disorder with those who have served in the military. Uh, and that is very true. Uh, having been a former, uh, I'm a veteran of the Army, two tours, including a combat tour, I understand that stress. I, I understand the, how the public can can understand that, but I think what the public may not fully understand is that officers in their own communities go through the same mental anguish and stress that any military veteran would have gone through. Uh, it's not uncommon if you take an officer of seven years on they have dealt with, if they're in a department of any great size and even smaller departments, 
but those folks with the seven-year mark have dealt with uh, SIDS deaths, which are infants that die at home, and the emotional trauma that the family has to deal with because they're on the scene, not only dealing with something that traumatic, but they have to deal with the family as well. Uh, you have officer-involved shootings, uh, which is uh, a very traumatic situation. Uh, most people don't think about the day-to-day the -day things that an officer may encounter or will encounter. Uh, fatality traffic accidents. Uh, at my department as a supervisor, I not only would be the supervisor at a fatality accident scene, but then it would be my job to go notify the family at two, three in the morning and give the death notification. Uh, those are all very emotional things that officers are required to do. Uh, you work a homicide scene or a stabbing or anything that brings a lot of outside emotion to what an officer does creates mental wear and tear. And most PTSD is cumulative in nature. So as officers deal with these emotional, difficult emotional situations, uh, that cumulative PTSD becomes a problem. That creates a problem in their personal lives. It creates a problem with uh, extended family. So it's important that we give officers the tools to be able to cope with or recognize the signs that they are struggling with something they may have seen or done on duty. And I certainly don't want to take away from any military veterans. That is not what I mean by this comment. But most military veterans, they start, their, their tours of duty, while maybe cumulative, are a year at a time. You're talking about officers that will not, they don't get a tour of duty. Their tour of duty is a continuous 15 or 20 years. Uh, for my department, the retirement is 25 years. So, uh, you're dealing with someone who has built up years of things that have occurred, that they have witnessed, that they are gonna need help for to be able to function in the public and with their family. Well, and, and you and I came up um, as rookies in a time where we were just told, don't take it home, you know, don't talk about this stuff that you see and suck it up. You know, that you and hey, I came up with it. you're expected to deal with this stuff. Now that's changing, right? But but it changes right? gener generationally, doesn't it? Yes. You and I came up in the time of the choir practice. <laughs> yeah. uh, for those listening, uh, in police jargon, a choir practice is, uh, well, I'll explain a choir practice. Uh, in those days, this is how mental health was handled by police officers. You didn't talk about it because cities only saw PTSD or emotional problems created by law enforcement job, the law enforcement job as a liability issue, which meant if you discussed it with cities, there's a good possibility to lessen liability that they would terminate you. So officers, uh, they internalized in the department. So if someone, an officer were to go on a difficult call that involved 
a death or something traumatic, the rest of the platoon, the shift you're working on, would go at the end of the shift, would go buy three or four cases of beer, and you'd go to your park or someplace out of the out of the way, and everybody would drink their drink about it and discuss it. What that problem, what that what that scenario created was some really great alcoholics. Uh, and it created officers who died early from uh, alcoholism or uh, the, the physical problems that are created by all that mental stress, heart attacks, strokes. Uh, and so someone somewhere uh, needs to stand up and take credit for the fact that they realized that all they were doing by doing choir practices was killing officers early. And so there was a generational change in how uh, uh, how officers approach their own mental health and the mental health of those around them. Uh, and so that eventually evolved into programs like Safe Call Now. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why as a rookie, I started out doing choir practices and I realized immediately that wasn't working. Uh, and so that is that is one of the reasons why I was always looking for a solution to that problem. And you call it, you can call it whatever you want to call it, uh, fate, uh, uh, heavenly intervention. But uh, I was able to, to locate this, show up at this symposium and, and it was, uh, there were four or five classes going and I just happened to pick Sean's and uh, it has revolutionized how I see mental health for first responders, as well as, uh, well, it's going, it's across the nation, it's nationwide. And so those that are looking for a solution to that problem have started looking to Safe Call Now. So what exactly, so the name of the organization is Safe Call Now. What exactly does that mean? So Safe Call Now is a national nonprofit and oh, what, what we offer to first responders is confidential, and that's a key part of this, uh, a confidential opportunity for officers to seek mental health assistance as well as assistance for, for other problems that they may have. And what I mean by that is this, an old stat that old statistic that comes that I am familiar with, and I'm sure it's been updated, but at one point, uh, those first responders that were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder had a comorbidity rate of somewhere around 80%, which means that eight out of 10 first responders that were suffering from PTSD attempted to self-medicate either using alcohol or prescription medication. Well, you can imagine how that's gonna turn out. Uh, and and to be fair, that's not a complete explanation. Uh, I have to talk about workman's compensation. Uh, officers by the nature of their work uh, are frequently injured. And I have to say that workman's compensation is a necessary evil. Workman's compensation's goal is to get you healthy, but it's only to get you healthy enough to return to work. It's to, it's to it's to facilitate your return to work. So a very easy way for workers' compensation to perform that task is to medicate you 
Vicodin, hydrocodone, uh, all of the prescription painkillers that are out there at one time or another have been prescribed to officers or first responders. I'm not leaving out the fire guys or EMS or, uh, or anybody for that matter. I, I speak from a, from a police perspective, but I certainly don't mean to, to not talk about fire and, and EMS. Uh, so as a group, uh, that's how we are treated so that we can get back on the job and, and continue our, our function. So if it's a back injury or it's a shoulder injury or it's a wrist or arm injury, uh, you're gonna get treated with workman's comp. And nine times out of 10, you're gonna be given some, some type of prescription medication to, to speed you back to work. Well, that creates, in some cases that creates an addiction problem. Hydrocodones, Vicodins, uh, we all know from national media uh, how addictive those substances are. And it, it does create uh, addiction problems for first responders. You have to look at it in that context that workman's compensation is going to treat you for 90 days. They're gonna give you prescription pain medications for 90 days. At the end of the 90 days, or 120 days or whatever it may be, uh, I, you're going to be, you're simply going to go back to your workman's compensation doctor. He's gonna say, you're clear to return to work and all your medications cease today. Well, if you've been taking that medication for three or four months, the outcome is that now you have, a, now you have an addiction problem and there's not been a solution provided to you by medical staff. So it creates other problems. Uh, so back to your initial question, Betsy, is what does Safe Call now do? Our objective is to stabilize and help first responders become better employees, better officers for the community, better husbands or wives for their families. Uh, and so that, that is our goal. And I think what separates Safe Call now from other programs that may exist is that we also focus on the immediate family of those first responders. Well, yeah, when we talk about our families, we, we have to talk about vicarious traumatization that, that right. you know, uh, someone who is, lives with or is married to a police officer or is parented by a police officer and is old enough to know what's happening, you know, our, our police kids get vicariously traumatized. And, uh, and that can make things difficult for the entire family. Cause you know, and you think, I mean, you know, it, when you have a, a supportive spouse at home as a police officer, that's incredibly helpful. But when you're having to go home to be the caretaker or, or um, having to pick up the slack at home, that can be very difficult for the whole family, right? Very much so, very much so. So to, to drop back to your initial point, Betsy, about Safe Call Now, our, our goal is to provide either local counseling or uh, we partner with inpatient care facilities that specialize in the modalities of mental health treatment specifically for first responders. And we actually 
uh, when we partner with a mental health facility, we actually go to that mental health facility. We look at those modalities of treatment. Uh, I can say that when I first started with Safe Call Now, uh, I was, I would go, that was one of the things I did. I would go to mental health facilities. I would stay in the beds. I'd stay overnight in the beds. I'd eat the food. Uh, I'd sit in on the modalities of treatment so that we could ensure that a first responder sent to a facility that we vetted, verified, and were comfortable with sending them to fit the needs of the first responder specifically. Uh, and we have had a very good success rate. Let me ask you this, John, why, uh, tell people why first responders, especially cops, are, um, we have to kind of be dealt with differently when you're talking about an addiction facility, a mental health facility. Um, you know, talk about why we can be difficult patients. Oh, we can be very difficult patients. We're A-type personality to begin with. Uh, by nature, we're all control freaks. Because if you think about the nature of police work, you always have to be on guard. You always have to pay attention to your surroundings. Uh, you are you are, as a first responder, I can say that uh, we are the probably some of the worst patients, uh, especially when it comes to something as sensitive as mental health. Uh, and what compounds that is there are still some municipalities that see mental health issues with first responders strictly from a liability standpoint. And HR departments, uh, that operate in those cities, uh, they're about terminating the liability. So that is why we stress confidentiality with Safe Call Now so that those folks that we are dealing with, those folks that, that are in the worst need don't have to worry about being terminated as a benefit of getting themselves well. Uh, and so we, we really focus on, on the city, the municipality, knowing the basics of whether or not he's well, he or she is is well enough to return to work, uh, and that they have met the requirements to return to work. And basically, that's how we present it to a city. A doctor reviews the charts, the progress of the first responder, and if that doctor decides this guy is in good enough shape emotionally, he is the right person to return to police their community, then they release him back to the police department or fire department or EMS service or dispatch center. You know, uh, a lot of times we forget about dispatchers and uh, they, some in some ways, in some aspects, they, they have the worst part of, of this process. They, talk to somebody anonymously who is in great emotional trauma and they have no closure. They hand that call off to a first responder. And a lot of times the, the dispatchers that I've spoken with don't know the outcome of what happened. They absorbed all that emotional trauma and there's absolutely no closure. Uh, here in Waco, we had just north of here, we have a, a, the city of West. And some may remember the West explosion, the fertilizer plant explosion in West. Uh, it was it was our dispatch center that handled that call because of how our county is set up. 
and there were numerous first uh, dispatchers uh, that that had problems with all the totality of that event simply because there's no that you can't see it you can't experience it you can't process it all but only through a telephone line so that we you can never forget the dispatchers because i really think in some ways they have the worst end of of their mental health situation yeah dispatchers truly are uh what we call those forgotten first responders very true very and, true uh, um and that's one of the things that i think is is unique about safe call now is uh Dis dispatchers, police, fire, EMS dispatchers are also part of that circle of the people that Safe Call Now is trying to assist. And, and so dispatchers can absolutely um, reach out. Uh, real quickly, um, where can people go to find out more about Safe Call Now? Safe Call Now has a website. It's safecallnowusa.org. Uh, I encourage everyone to go to that website. Uh, we also have a state of Washington phone number that any first responder or family member can call. It will be on that safecallusa.org website. Uh, it's a 24-7, 365. The state of Washington has a very strict first responder privacy policy. And so by, by operating out of the state of Washington, those privacy laws uh, are immediately attached when somebody calls. That's fantastic. Sergeant John Olovio from Safe Call Now, we appreciate you spending time with us. And if you would like Thank more you. information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. This year, over 50,000 law enforcement officers have been assaulted while on duty. A vast number of these attacks were filmed and uploaded to social media in the pursuit of likes and attention. What they want to do is film you instead of like, what can I do to help this officer? Together, we can change this disturbing trend. If that individual would have hit the right spot, you know, it, it could have been it for me. You know, last time I would have saw my wife, my kids. I'm Mike Solon. Law enforcement officers need your support. If you see an officer under attack, then follow these simple steps in order to help. One, call 911 and give the officer's exact location. Two, ask the officer if you can assist. If the officer accepts, then do whatever you can do to safely help. Three, if the officer declines, then start filming and be a good witness. It's time to stop filming and start helping.